Hello, boys and ghouls, and welcome to episode three. We're calling this one Ghoularama. The audio in this episode suffered a little when our microphone picked up the sound of our computer's fan. Uh, lesson to any rookie podcasters, get an extension cord for your microphone, just as I will be doing before we record our next episode. And now, enjoy episode three of Boys and Goons. You want to see something really scary? They come from the bowels of hell, a transformed race of walking dead. Zombies, exploding heads. Psychos, fanatics, murderers, nutcases. Now, do we all agree that what we are dealing with is vampires? I know that one of you is a werewolf. Ain't nothing. Dead I want to kill. Undead. So so you are talked to a corpse. Satan is our pal. It's boring. Throw the third switch. Not the third switch. Give my creation. Bye. What about an open spread? Uh, what kind of spread? Bread. Just a piece. Honey? Nope. Plus knife? Nope. Onto a piece of nope. white bread. I tell you no. No, I say. Honey mustard? Good. Honey? No good. Mm. Yeah. And it depends on the honey mustard. If it's heavy on the honey? Nope. Um, so, I've been holding out on you for something I did recently. Okay. Uh, I had my fortune told. You did? So I've always wanted to do that. It wasn't, it wasn't the whole deal because it was free. Yeah. I was at a bakery that was celebrating the one-year anniversary of their cake balls. Okay. And the whole thing was Huey Herman theme. Wait. And people. Wait, why? I don't know. I mean, I'm happy. I, I love it. I don't, but... I don't think there's even a connection. Okay. It was just like people would dress up. Yeah. As various Huey characters. The woman running it was dressed as the bicycle. Oh. Yeah. Odd choice. Really? Yeah. I would have gone with Miss Yvonne. There, there was probably more than one Miss Yvonne. I'm sure. And there was the fortune teller. Uh-huh. Someone dressed like the fortune teller from... Jombie. Uh, no. Okay, not Jombie. Not Jombie. Uh, the one who sends him to the Alamo. Oh, okay. And so you could get your fortunes told. And she oh. had a deck of tarot cards. And she spoke with an accent. She's like, I miss Ruby. Sit down. And I was like, okay. And she, she went through the hole. She gave me like one card. And it wasn't really... It wasn't my future. Uh-huh. It was like, tell me my own personality. Right. And she's like, you are very strong. But but you must be very careful because there is also weakness. Ooh, very and, balanced. I see. And then it's like, and then there's a wheel of fortune. You'll be making choices soon. I bought an iPhone. <laughs> so <laughs> that was a fulfilling prophecy. That was a choice. Yeah. And then there was nobody in line behind me. Well, first I was like, are we done? Because there was only two cards, and in the movies there's usually like six or seven. Yeah, you're yeah. looking for that hangman. They're just like just laying them all out. Yeah. And there's always like one of them's death. Yes. And they're like, don't be afraid. Death means change. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's like, yeah, but change can be death. But doesn't death mean death? Yeah. What, what have you got in that deck that means death? Mm-hmm. If death isn't death. Right. There was nobody waiting behind me, so he's like, do you want, to, do you want another one? And I was like, yeah. And, and she said, accent or no accent? Uh, and I said, well, I've, I, I knew she wasn't Hungarian. Uh-huh. And I said, well, I've already heard the accent, so just give me, you know, no accent. And then she gave me a second reading that didn't contradict the first. Uh-huh. With no accent. I, I'm a little, ner- I would be nervous to get my fortune told. Just in case. I, well, no, I mean, the thing is I'm not above believing that some people are more tuned into the, I guess, 
the ether and might possibly be able to foresee a future. It's I actually kind of believe that might be true for some people, certainly not as many who claim it is true for them. However, I do I also believe in the power of suggestion and I I think it's just dangerous. I feel like I might self-fulfill some kind of prophecy that I don't want to. So not sure if it's the best plan for me, but that's fun. Also, uh, just in keeping with our, our horror podcast that we're doing. Yes. Is uh, that what we're doing? Yeah. <laughs> Buffyverse Werewolf Seth Green was there. <gasps> oh, that's one in the Buffyverse I have not met. I've met quite a few of them. Yeah? Yeah. Like, uh, of a percentage. Oh, I'm, well, if we're talking, like, major, minor characters, probably 2%. But, 2%. You know, but I have met, I met Nicholas Brendan a couple of times, and he was wonderful both times. I have two pictures with him. I've met Amber Benson, who played Tara. I've met Adam Bush, who was one of, you know, the evil trio that was at the nerd trio that was after Buffy, uh, the one who actually shot Tara. They were dating when I met them. I, I can't claim to have met Seth Green. Uh-huh. More just like I was in the same bakery and kept looking at him. Where Are you a full head taller than he is yeah he's yeah he's pretty tiny huh and i uh, his wife was there she's taller than he is right yeah and I, I really wanted them to just sort of stand next to each other uh-huh. and be like settle this for me um, i'm sure he would have loved that. <laughs> that that's really the best i could have offered him as a fan it's like hey love idle hands go stand next to your wife <laughs> wow it's so scary we dare you to see the monsters crash the pajama party the first movie ever filmed in horror vision hollywood's latest miracle you'll scream as fiendish movie monsters actually become alive then crash right out of the screen go into the audience and carry screaming girls from their seats right back into the picture to become part of the movie we warn you horror vision is not 3d the movie monsters become real flesh and blood be sure to see the monsters crash the pajama party in horror vision and color Okay, hello everybody, and welcome to episode number three. I'm Marshall Hicks, and with me is... Cat Knight. And we're going to be discussing uh, horror movie advertisements and publicity gimmicks. What works, what doesn't, why it works, and the crazy length to which people will go to get people in the seats to see movies. We'll be covering uh, gimmicks both inside and outside of the theater. That's right. I think we should start with movie advertising in general from the beginning of movies. What do you think about that? You've researched it. I have. Give it to me. We can't get to where we are without knowing where we've been. So really, just very briefly, the earliest days of film advertising consisted of movie posters. And the posters, for the most part, depicted the experience of going to the movies. You would literally see a picture on the movie poster of people sitting in the seats in engaged in the film, you know, really? or it would be a shot of the people sitting and then the screen like, this um, could be you. in front of them. Exactly. You know, this magical experience. It was about the experience. And really, it was, movies were a novelty that promoted themselves. Come see the moving pictures, right? It almost, it would be We've an attraction. we got a train. Yes. It would be an attraction like the fat lady at the carnival, you know, just something else that's a marvel. And of course, the movie companies were attempting to avoid any stars emerging into the spotlight because they didn't want to deal with salaries of big-name stars that they had had to deal with on the stages. They thought, you know, keep it anonymous. Don't have some big movie star that's going to incur a huge salary. But, of course, the people spoke by giving little nicknames to their favorite stars, and then the big stars started to emerge, and people became interested in the stars, and so all of that flew out the window. What year are we up to here? Like, like 1905? Mm, uh, 10? 11. 11. Something like that. So the experience of going to the movies became a lot more about the narrative and a lot more about the stars, which seemed 
seems like it would be necessary to kind of keep it going as a, an experience people wanted to have. You know, at some point, just the novelty of going to the film kind of wears off. We've seen it, so what else can you give me? And stories were what was given. Mm-hmm. And, and how would they sell these second wave of stories? Well, again, with movie posters, but there were also a lot of instances. A lot of these companies in New York and L.A., publicity companies for these films, would actually send out uh, exhibitors' manuals. They emphasized stunts that they could put on, contests, tie-ins with local merchants, ways that they could publicize these films in their own small towns. Because for these movie studios, it was about getting the people in these small towns to see. They really focused on that. I'm not sure what kinds of contests and tie-ins and stunts were performed, but I'm sure a lot of it involved giveaways of small things and, you know. Well, especially in the Depression, the plate night and the bank nights where they would give away money. So just plates started to take over. Yeah. So uh, since since almost the earliest days, they've been using whatever methods they thought were appropriate to get people in the seat. So cat. <laughs> yes, Marshall. Let's fast forward about uh, sixty years. All right. Let's talk about Hitchcock, shall we? Let's. He got people in the seats. Yes. Have you seen the trailer for Psycho? The one where Hitchcock sort of walks you through the, the Bates house? Exactly what I'm talking about, yeah. Yes. Isn't it so much fun? I rewatched it today. One of the main things I noticed about it, watching it with a critical eye this time, was that there are many times when Hitchcock begins telling us about what happened in the house and He's then like, cuts himself no, no. off. It's, it's far too gruesome. Yes. He says, what kind of a woman could... Well, never mind that for now. And this happens over and over again. And actually... What I loved is that the music towards but the beginning... Neither of our Hitchcocks sounded like Hitchcock, but yeah. yours sounded like Catherine Hepburn. Thank you. <laughs> uh, Marshall Hicks. Good evening. <laughs> I'm very happy to be here. So, but it starts off with kind of a jaunty music as he's traveling through by sure. the hotel and into the house, but then the music gets a little darker as he starts getting more detailed. And then, of course, at the very end, he reaches up to the shower curtain, pulls it back, and then you see a scream, and then the psycho comes up on the screen. But really, the majority of this advertising isn't anything about footage of the movie. It's him describing, or semi-describing, what horrible things happened in this place I'm standing in, which I think is really interesting. Well, they've cleaned all this up now. Big difference. You should have seen the blood. The whole, the whole place was, well, it's, it's too horrible to describe. Dreadful. They did similar for the birds, which was just him showing off stuffed birds and eating some chicken. And he's like, oh, <laughs> the bird. How they must love it that we pluck their feathers for our hats and... Won't they seek revenge at some point? Does he kind of imply? Well, that? at the very end, uh, Tippy Hedren uh-huh. comes in, and it's not—it's not from the movie, uh, The Birds. It's like just for the commercial. Tippy Hedren actually comes in. Well, me. she's wearing her birds costume, and it looks like she just met with some birds. Oh. And then she's like, "They're here! They're coming!" And like, ah, birds. That's really funny. So what do you think that it is about about Hitchcock describing the horrible things that happened, but then not showing you? What, what do you think about that enticed people in 1960 to want to go see Psycho? It's an extension of what he continued to do once the movie was released, which is keep you guessing at what you're not allowed to see. He didn't allow people into the theaters after the film had started, isn't that right? That was a big deal, yeah. There will be no entry into Psycho after it has begun. I'm guessing the, uh, the usher, it's not like Hitchcock himself was standing there, although the advertising 
advertisements would be like a picture of Hitchcock looking at his watch, like, <laughs> hey, give him the theater. Right. But I guess the theater managers told the ushers to uh, not let anybody in, and then the ushers just didn't. The thing about Hitchcock, though, is that once you were in the theater, the movie delivered, right? Yes. People were really scared by Psycho. And there's one man that I really want to talk about at length who Please. wanted to scare people the way Hitchcock did and wanted to kind of be Hitchcock. He was kind of his Salieri, if you will. That man was William Castle. I am William Castle, the director of the motion picture you're about to see. William Castle, as John Waters, I think, has put it so eloquently, yeah. uh, and lovingly, I might add, the poor man's Alfred Hitchcock. I'll buy that. And William Castle was kind of making movies right around when Hitchcock was, and incredibly inspired by Hitchcock, and wanted to really scare people, but he wasn't as good at making those movies, was he? Not in the long run. No. Now, both of us, independent of each other, did some uh, research in William Castle. I used the book Crackpot by John Waters, where he talks about William Castle films. You seem to use the internet. I did. And I also got Step Right Up, I'm Gonna Scare the Pants Off America, the autobiography of William Castle. That's really great. I've enjoyed the films of his I've seen. I mean, I've seen 13 Ghosts, I've seen House on Haunted Hill. I think they're really fun. I mean, kind of comical, but I attribute that to me being someone who has also seen The Exorcist and, like, much more gruesome movies that came later. I've also seen his movies, but at the same time, I feel like I've only part seen his movies because so much of them were the theatrical experience that we can only just get, like, a rough idea of what it was like. Absolutely. Well, do you want to talk about some of his gimmicks? Let's go in order. Okay. Marshall, hit me with what he did to get people in those theaters. Well, in 1958, he made Macabre, which was described as a diabolique ripoff. Uh, William Castle went to Lloyd's of London so he could ensure his audience members should they die of fright. Your attention, please. During every suspenseful moment of the running of the motion picture Macabre, the life of everyone in this theater will be insured by Lloyds of London for $1,000 against death by fright. Oh my goodness. So in this one, there was no gimmicks actually in the movie itself, but rather in the theater. There would also be uh, nurses on hand to check your blood pressure. More than one Castle movie would use nurses. Uh, this was a big movie for William Castle. He mortgaged his own house to finance the film himself. He did. No yeah. wonder he was so desperate to make sure people got their butts in the yeah. seats. $10 million worth of insurance policies were distributed. The Lloyds of London charged Castle $5,000 for the policy, estimating that five people might actually die of fright. The insurance also excluded pre-existing conditions and suicide. Yikes. Uh, for a little bit of extra showmanship, Castle would travel around with the movies and he would show up in a hearse and come out of a coffin. Wow. In Minneapolis, arriving in a coffin, it got too stuffy and he passed out in, <laughs> in the coffin. So, in 1959... Uh, well, House on Haunted Hill. I'm Vincent Price and you're invited to my party in the house on Haunted Hill where so far the ghosts have murdered only seven people. <laughs> So won't you come and make it eight? House on Haunted Hill was filmed in Emerjo. He liked to name sort of a, a new technique that it was filmed in. You know, like color vision. Emerjo spelled, for those of you listening, E-M-E-R-G-O. I think there should probably be a hyphen in between G and O. At any rate, uh, an inflatable glow-in-the-dark skeleton attached to a wire floated over the audience during the final moments of some showings of the film. And this happened in conjunction with the action on the screen when a skeleton arose from a vat of acid 
acid and pursued the villainous wife of Vincent Price. And I don't know if you remember the scene in the movie, but I nary have laughed so hard. Vincent Price's character is doing this to the wife. It's not a real skeleton. It's not a real ghost. But it emerges out of this vat of acid and comes at her with arms that appear to float as if someone is pulling wires to make them move, which is exactly what's happening. And she screams and screams. Deep breath. Scream! Scream! And it's so dramatic. And the skeleton is quite comical, in my opinion. I don't know if it scared many people, but in the theaters, he would have it come out over wires, and apparently it didn't really scare the people in the theaters either. In fact, I've read stories about kids throwing popcorn and other things at these skeletons. Yeah. (laughs) Float over the audience, intending to be really super terrifying. Well, the first time they tried it, it didn't really work, and it just landed on the audience. Oh! And the audience just sort of crowd-surfed it. Oh, that's funny. Now, the Emergio was something added after principal photography as a gimmick. His next film, The Tingler, was made with the gimmick in mind as they were making the movie. That one was using Percepto. Percepto. Have you seen The Tingler? I haven't seen it, but I've read... Why don't you explain it to me one more time, what uh, okay. what the premise is. V- Vincent Price is a, uh, is a scientist who believes that when you're really scared, an organism starts to grow in your spine. <laughs> and the only thing that'll stop its growth is if you scream. So follow- Scream! Scream for your life! Someone decides to murder his deaf-mute wife by scaring her to death, and that she can't scream. She's so, mute. so the tingler grows and grows, and then Vincent Price autopsies her and removes the tingler, which looks like a caterpillar, lobster... So, but then the tingler gets loose in a silent movie theater. So then I believe everything goes black and Vincent Price can be heard saying like, the tingler is loose in the theater. Oh, Vincent Price. That's all right. I forgive you. I think any any old timey hey. movie star that I'm gonna do is gonna sound like Catherine Hepburn. So you try. I, to I can again. probably do like Bill Hader's Vincent Price. Like, right. Hello. I'm Vincent Price. I'm Vincent Price. Children. Yeah, very good. The, the tingler is loose in the theater. Ladies and gentlemen, please do not panic, but scream, scream for your lives. The tingler is loose in this theater, and if you don't scream, it may kill you. And then what would happen? The theaters would be rigged with buzzers to uh, buzz your bottom. My research told me that they were military surplus airplane wing de-icers consisting of vibrating motors. And that's what was attached to the seat. Really? That made them... And they just vibrated. They didn't... You know, some people... It's misrepresented in some of the literature as, like, shockers. Like, the kind that you yeah, would... Yeah, just a buzz. Shake. Yeah, but it, it wasn't. It was more of a vibration. And that would happen. And then, yeah, Vincent Price would be telling people to scream for their lives. I've read different accounts. Some say that all the seats were, were rigged. Some say that only one out of every ten were rigged. But in any case... Um, if you were in one out of ten. Yeah. If you were one of those... I'm sure that would be pretty you got a good shot. I have read that in Philadelphia, a truck driver in the audience was so incensed that he ripped out his seat and it took five ushers to subdue him. <laughs> I believe that. Another story is that during Audrey Hepburn's A Nun Story was playing like earlier in the day to a crowd of like, women. Some people say that there was wires got crossed and oh their seats just started getting zapped. And another story has it as a zealous projectionist. They start zapping asses. <laughs> Those sweet little old ladies mm-hmm. wanting to watch a story about A nuns. nun story. <laughs> they say it was doing a very dramatic part. Where oh, all the boy. nuns are praying. It, oh, it was the hand of God. It, these, I bet oh, some of these God-fearing women were probably thinking the end had come. Right to their asses. Oof. And um, <laughs> it, it said that it went in waves through the audience. Wow. Uh, 13 Ghosts 
came out in 1960, same year as Psycho. It was filmed in Illusiono, which consisted of, uh, what was the gimmick there, Marshall? When you see 13 ghosts, you'll be given a supernatural viewer like this, which will enable you to penetrate for the first time into the spirit world. It will let you see all 13 of our weird, wonderful, and wildly assorted ghosts. Not exactly 3D glasses, but a, I guess a piece of cardboard called a ghost viewer, where you could see ghosts in ectoplasmic color. There was one green part, uh, like green plastic, and the other was blue, and if you look through one of them, you could see ghosts uh, on the screen interacting with the actors, and through the other, you couldn't. Do you think that, was that, did that really work, or, I, or did you see them through any, it didn't really make a difference? I, I heard one just made it better, and that you could, you could see it through both. That was kind of my understanding. The idea was, if you can't take it, if you don't want to see the ghost because you're too darn frightened, then you can you move it. switch over yeah, to the other exactly. one. Uh, and that's an example of a, of a gimmick that was right from the beginning of the production mm-hmm. and, and not just sort of tacked on afterwards. Although I also read that uh, William Castle wanted to give out 20 million keys to audience members, one of which would open a haunted house in France. I don't know if he actually went through with that. Wow, I hadn't heard that. You didn't read his autobiography. <laughs> I didn't. Do you want to talk about Homicidal? Homicidal was considered a Hitchcock ripoff. By now, uh, Hitchcock had already done the uh, No One May Enter the Theater. Oh, in this one, William Castle created the Fright Break. Two minutes before the end of the picture, there would be the sound of a heartbeat, and William Castle's own voice offering a full refund for anyone too scared to continue. I'm assuming the screen was black. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Yeah. In an early screening, the entire audience went for their money back, and the theater owners were like, this, no, terrible idea. And then it was put together that they were people who had actually stayed for a second screening and then got their money back. So they started giving out tickets in, in like five, one of five different colors. So you had to have the correct color ticket in order to get your money back. But before you got your money back, <laughs> you would have to go to Coward's Corner, a yellow cardboard booth at, uh, at the box office. And apparently the route to Coward's Corner was marked with yellow footprints. With, yes. with yellow footprints. They say a yellow light would shine Aged on Coward's Corner. yellow light. While the people were heading to Coward's Corner, a recording was blaring, Watch the chicken! Watch him shiver in Coward's Corner! As the audience howled, you had to go through one final indignity. At Coward's Corner, you were forced to sign a yellow card stating, I am a bona fide coward. And after all that, you get your nickel back. Then we come to Mr. Sardonicus. 1961 also. Mr. Sardonicus had the punishment pole. There's a, a couple of uh, versions of this that I've heard. One was that he made Mr. Sardonicus with kind of a down ending. Mm-hmm. And then the studio was like, listen here, Bob. That's too down of an ending. <laughs> it's got to be up. It's got to be light. It's got to be airy. got to feel good picture. You and your best gal. <laughs> And so William Castle then went and shot the uh, happier ending. Mm-hmm. Then when it was being presented, before either ending would be shown, he would come on the screen and say, all of you were given a or mercy card, where it was a, a thumb. A glow-in-the-dark thumb they could hold either up or down. If you want to show him no mercy and punish him as he deserves, then hold up your punishment pole ballot with the thumb pointing down, like this. If, on the other hand, uh, you're one of those I-wouldn't-hurt-a-fly kind of people, one of those sweet, nice, kind souls uh, who would let Mr. Sardonicus go free, you should hold your ballad with the thumb pointing up like this. Okay, two versions of this. One, there was never a light version. Uh, they didn't even film it. Right? No, no, they never filmed it, and, and, and no guy who talked like this ever asked him to because they knew that no one would give mercy, or certainly not enough. Sadistic audience. 
audiences. For, no, not one audience ever decided that he should live. William Castle was up on the screen, like, pretending to count, like, looking at the audience, being like, one, two, three. Uh, another, well, in his autobiography, he says that the ushers did the count and then would decide which to play. So I don't know if the hokum extends all the way to his uh, autobiography or not. Uh, either way, uh, sounds like good fun in the theater. Okay, um, moving on to Straight Jacket. Straight Jacket uh, really didn't need a gimmick because it had a star. It had Joan Crawford as the star. Uh, she was a very big hit with the audiences, and she would go to the towns where the movie was being opened and appear in person. Although, just in case, William Castle brought cardboard axes. Did you read about 13 Frightened Girls? I did. 1963. Well, I, I actually watched a trailer for this. 13, oh. 13 Frightened Girls, his gimmick started with the casting of the film. And he supposedly traveled the world to find 13 of the most beautiful girls in the world. I think and they the, came to him. The tra- probably. And the trailer was the girls, just it just a, a shot of each girl. It was like, Japan, <laughs> Canada, Brazil. You know, it was just like all, you know, all these the beautiful girls. And that basically was just that and then them screaming here and there. And that was the gimmick of, it was like, come see the pretty girls, which I thought was a lot of fun. Well, you know what they did for the movie. Each one was made the star of the film by uh, having an opening narration. Oh. And and it would be shown in each of their native countries with that version. Oh, no, that I did not know. Oh, yes. That's a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, uh, anyway, movie, you, you were going to talk about I Saw What You Did from 65. Yeah, the premise of I Saw What You Did is a couple of girls are doing some prank calls. They just call a random number and say, I saw what you did and I know who you are. But then they accidentally call someone who had actually just committed a murder. And oh, boy. It gets them into a world of trouble. So William Castle tried to advertise a phone number for people to call where like a sexy girl's voice will say, I saw what you did and I know who you are. And then would say, like, Come down to the theater. And how well, well did that go? That was fine. The problem came in when people actually saw the movie, teenagers saw the movie, and then phone lines all over the city would get jammed with thousands of teens prank calling. Oh, boy. And because of that, the phone company got all pissed. And, no more. And stopped all their, their tie-ins and promotions. After that, it was Rosemary's Baby. Oh, yeah. Now, Castle wanted to direct Rosemary's Baby, but the producers of the film kind of thought the book deserved a better director for the film, and so Roman Polanski. But Castle co-produced, and he also has a cameo in the film. The note I wrote down about this one was that the first person to see the book, Rosemary's Baby, was Alfred Hitchcock. Hmm. William Castle was the second, (laughs) and uh, he's the one that went ahead with production. Finally, we come to Bug. Uh, 75, 1975. The gimmick with Bug is that, uh, going back to, uh, going back to old tricks, he insured a giant cockroach named Hercules for a million dollars and then went on tour with him to various openings of Bug. In, in his autobiography, it says he released onto the city, I assume New York, colored red, green, and blue flies. What? Yeah. T- to what end, I-, I don't know. I am not into that. That's terrifying. Uh, Kat, have you ever seen the movie Matinee? No. Okay, it's uh, directed by Joe Dante, starring John Goodman, in an ode to William Castle. He plays a very William Castle-esque director who's full of gimmicks, and he has a new movie to promote, Matt. If a man and an ant were exposed to radiation simultaneously, the result would be terrible indeed. For the result would be Matt. A mant. A mant, and he uh, he comes to uh, Key West to promote his movie during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh-oh. So there's a lot going on with America, and a few young people that the story follows centering around their own lives and the opening of mant. 
featured in Rumble-Rama and Atomovision. Atomovision. And it's just really a, a love letter to the era and uh, William Castle specifically. Joe Dante says that in uh, research, they came about as close as you can to actually showing how the buzzers were installed in the seats uh-huh. uh, for the Tingler. Like the, the mechanics of it were, were pretty accurate to the movie. And setting it during the Cuban Missile Crisis, not an uneventful time for monster movies. Did you know that the Monster Mash was number one on the Billboard charts during that week? I did not. It was. It was also October. Uh Uh-huh. So, you know, that helps. Also, um, as the traditional creatures started gaining popularity, one of the big products that you could get was the Aurora models. The uh, the model of the Wolfman, the model of the Mummy, and the model of Dracula. Those all hit the stores the same week as the Cuban Missile Crisis. So lots of um, horror authorities like to draw some parallels right there. And you can have a lot of fun with both of those things in matinee. I will definitely make it a point to see that. A notable figure in promoting horror movies and producing horror movies and who brought us a lot of great titles over the years is Samuel Z. Arkoff, one half of AIP, American International Pictures, who brought us such titles as I Was a Teenage Werewolf, The Amazing Colossal Man, and It Conquered the World. Uh, and many, many more. Nothing you've ever seen has such blood-chilling savagery. Nothing you've ever conceived packs such a spine-tingling jolt. What they would do back in the day is they would start with a poster and a tagline, and they would test it, and if it tested well, then they would write the script. Just the poster and the tagline? Yeah, that's all they had. And the the title. Sure, yeah. And they would uh, workshop it with, like, teenagers and, and college kids. Yeah. And be like, how do you like this one? Uh, he believed in advertising with the three C's. Not the letter C, but C. C. A man fight against supernatural forces for the girl he loves. C. A beast with a million eyes control a ship from outer space. C. The beast with a million eyes. Oh my goodness. If you just tell them to see something three times, people <laughs> will do it. Some of his notable movie promotions was Terror Scope. Kind of like Illusiono. Yes. When AIP decided to get out of the B picture business, literally B, there would be the A picture, which was from a major studio, and the B picture, which was from them, and smaller studios like them. The way they got out of it was by creating double features and selling them in pairs so that they would be both the A and B picture of the night. The first time they did this was with The Day the World Ended and The Phantom from 10,000 Leagues. But when they were promoting it in Detroit, there was a newspaper strike. And so what they did was they created horror caravans. Horror caravans were uh, trucks that would drive around, guys and gals on them, depicting scenes from the movies with monsters menacing scantily clad girls. Oh my goodness. In Detroit. In Detroit. In December. Ooh. Yeah, right. For the movie Premature Burial, Arkoff recommended that theaters publicize an actual live burial by a man or pretty girl. I don't know if any theaters went ahead and Good did lord, that's pretty macabre. For Bucket of Blood, there was a lot that he wanted them to do involving like creating actual buckets of blood at like blood donor sites. And... But a nice gimmick that worked and got them into Life Magazine's Picture of the Week was for Tales of Terror, one of many Vincent Price films that were done with AIP. Tales of Terror had, I think, three segments, and the one, The Black Cat, they had small ads in the trade paper that advertised for people to bring their black cats to audition. Over 700 people showed up with their black cats, and some cat fights broke out. (laughs) Literal cat fights. And now everyone's confused and can't remember which one's their cat. Hopefully they have them collared. Yeah, I think they actually had them on leashes as well. (laughs) They weren't just kind of hanging out in the street. That would have been a disaster. 
but photographers were there, and a shot of this cat convention became Life Magazine's Picture of the Week, and it was great publicity. That's a lot of fun. Uh, before we go uh, any further in time, there's a, I'll call it a subgenre, the hypnosis movies. Mm-hmm. It was a bit of a, of a kerfuffle when the idea of subliminal advertising came out. So there's a couple of movies capitalized on that. With Horrors of the Black Museum, presented in Hypnovista, promising to place the audience into a trance of terror through light, music, and sound. It opened with a 13-minute explanation of hypnotism and a demonstration. 13 minutes? Yeah, okay. good upfront warning. In the demonstration, uh, a guy puts pins through a woman's arms. Ugh. Yeah. My World Dies Screaming a.k.a. Terror in the Haunted House, presented in Psychorama, claimed to uh, contain a single frame of hidden images, such as skulls, knives, and words like death, designed to trigger the audience's emotional responses. And um, this was all around 1959, 1960. The Hypnotic Eye. This one's a little complicated. An extended audience hypnosis sequence, referred to as hypnomagic. The hypnotist in the movie speaks directly to the audience, instructing them to take out their hypnotic balloons they were given upon entering the theater, these balloons. Along with the characters uh, in the movie, they are instructed to blow up the balloon, tie it off, now dizzy from the inflation, they were then instructed to lean forward and then sit up, creating lightheadedness, compounded by the hypnotic eye, and an uh, extreme close-up of a flashing, strobing light. So, My goodness. Why don't, they could have just told everyone, just like, okay, in the theater, stand up, spin around, sit back down. <laughs> You have been hypnotized! <laughs> it's positively ridiculous. And, I and like that's it, that's really fun. Hypnotic balloons really didn't catch on. <laughs> I leave you now in a trance of enjoyable hallucinations. Okay, so Marshall, fast forwarding a little bit from that era into, I just have to talk about this one trailer that I happened upon. I was actually watching a few interviews with Eli Roth, who. I'm, I'm a fan of. I mean, I think a lot of his stuff is pretty gross, but he is far and away one of the directors I feel is the most a fan of and someone who makes a lot of films that are intimidating to the viewer, which I think a lot of horror advertising especially... I mean, we talked about Hitchcock and Castle kind of daring people to see their films, yeah. explaining in various ways how much of an effect it will have on your psyche to see these films. Eli Roth mm-hmm. has been inspired by that and also has created a lot of films like that. I think audiences respond really heavily to being told that a movie is going to have a huge effect on them, that they're going to be so scared and, oh, they might not even be able to watch it. And anyway, I was watching interviews with Eli Roth. Now, and he, did you see Eli Roth in Trailers from Hell? No. That's where I've been getting some of my information. Oh. There's a great site, everybody, called Trailers from Hell, where horror movie directors and the like will watch different trailers, not just horror movies, and comment on the trailer and the movie itself and what it meant to them. And this, Eli Roth is uh, one of the participating this directors. May be, this may have been from that, but I found him talking about a double feature from 1972 called I Dismember Mama. Uh, was one of the movies, and the other movie was The Blood Spattered Bride. It was a double feature. Yeah. And he was talking about this trailer, and then I went and watched the trailer purely without him talking over it. And the gimmick of this trailer is um, they have a news reporter from TV 12, and he's outside the theater where they're showing I Dismember Mama and The Blood Spattered Bride because some guy's gone berserk, you see? In the theater? In the theater. And these two cops come out dragging this guy out in a straight jacket. And he's like, what happened here? And the cop, well, you see, this guy just went berserk, I say. It went berserk. And that's all he'll say. He well, keeps saying Why do we give old-timey voices to even people in the 70s? I'm sorry. It's just too much fun. Yeah, it's 1976. It's <laughs> a bicentennial, people. 
So they intercut this scene that's happening outside this theater with a couple of flashes from scenes from the films, most of which involve just bare breasts mm. and violence. That'll sell me. It will. But then he's interviewing various people outside the theater, and there's a couple. There's a man and a wife. He says, it scared the piss out of her, I say. And he keeps saying that, and she goes, My bodily fluids was not affected in any way. He didn't used to talk like that. It's that bowling league. Ever since he joined that bowling league, his mouth turned into a garbage can. Hey, you leave my bowling league out of here. But this is very comedic in nature, you know? They want yeah. it to be funny. Oh, and the other thing is that that wife says to the reporter, we don't usually attend events of this cultural persuasion. <laughs> Look, the old man wanted to come see it. Sounds like a couple of straight laces got what's coming. Uh, okay. the, the other thing is the reporter holds up an upchuck cup, and there's this hippie. I really grooved on the upchuck cup really far out. You like the upchuck cup? Oh, really turn me on, you know what I mean? Did you get sick? Oh, wow, I got sick. I got sick all over. Oh, wow, really far out. <laughs> oh, why didn't you use your upchuck cup? Oh, it wasn't big enough. I had to use my purse. You want to see? No, no. And just these, these ridiculous caricatures being interviewed about this film. And I, the one thing I kind of latched onto about it is the straight-laced couple. The woman, you know, her statement about we don't usually attend events of this cultural persuasion. Yeah. I feel like that, along with advertising that tells you how scared you'll be when you see it and how a lot of people can't handle it, I feel like it has a unifying effect for especially young people who are the chief demographic for horror films. You know, when she says, we don't usually come to things like this. And it makes the young rebel kids like, yeah, we do. We come to things like this, yeah, and this is You head back thing. to Squaresville and enjoy your instant coffee. But I just had such a good time. If you ever, just YouTube search, guys, if you're listening to this and want to see something really funny, go find that trailer. I have here the upchuck cup, a little item passed out by the management to remind you that if you can't take the current double bill of horror films called Frenzy of Blood, that you better not come. Now, I did a lot of research into vomit bags. Oh, God. They, they all seemed to show up in uh, 1970, 1972, through 74, and then uh, a couple times thereafter. One of which, uh, as a boy rooting around my, my parents' basement, I found one. You did? Yes, and they're really not movie people. I don't know where it came from or how it got introduced to their belongings. I'm pretty sure neither of my parents went to see Mark of the Devil. <laughs> In hey, 1970, you don't know. I don't think it would have survived like three moves. <laughs> right. So, I, I still years later, I asked my dad about it, and no memory. While researching this, I asked my mom about it, and she's like, "I don't know what you're talking about." Yeah. So, but yes, the, the, the first notable one was Mark of the Devil, which was a West German import. On it, it said, "This vomit bag and the price of admission will enable you to see Mark of the Devil." The first film rated V for violence. And you know what? I don't think there was a V for violence. I think oh, I'm was, sure not. That was their invention. Guaranteed to upset your stomach. Positively the most horrifying film ever made. And this is all, um, it looks like what you get on, on an airplane. Uh-huh. So it's like thick paper. Oh, and there was a picture on it, which... On the, was, on the vomit it, it was, it was a, Yeah, it was like of a woman being tortured. She was like in a... She had like something around her head to like keep her head still. Uh-huh. And then something like on her tongue or lower lip to like pulling it down. And then, like, a guy standing menacingly over her. Oh. So you're like, whatever makes me vomit, it's whatever's going to happen next. Okay. Then there was Carnage in 1971, also rated B for violence. It said, the first movie that dares to show you hardcore violence. This was written on the, on the barf bag. I guess to say nothing of Mark of the Devil years before. <laughs> it was a Mario Bava film. Positively no refunds. Well, they can't say they didn't warn them. I mean, people can't demand a refund when they're handed a vomit bag, exactly. I would say. And they accept it gladly and walk into the theater. 
Uh, Tomb of the Dead, a Spanish import. You've seen a trend here. They're all like foreign imports uh-huh. that need a little something extra because they don't have any stars that anyone's ever heard of. This vomit bag and the price of admission will enable you to see Tomb of the Blind Dead. Rated PG. <laughs> In its defense, this was before PG-13 was invented. Uh, when the screaming stops, German, 1974... Because of the intense nature of this film, stomach distress may occur. Down in, in small print, it says, do not reuse. Oh. Which sounds more like something you would get out of Mad Magazine. Right. That's when the trend seemed to end, except for Hellbound, Hellraiser 2, which you've I've seen. I've seen that, did, yeah. did you throw up? I did not, well, that I recall. <laughs> they called theirs a fright bag. Okay. So, not, so less of gross out and more like, I'm so distressed, my body will empty its contents. Or it could be for hyperventilation. Oh, oh. Just thinking it over. Okay. You know, Hellraiser and Hellraiser 2 are pretty distressing, I, I have to say. Even as a, a modern lady who didn't really see those films in its entirety until I was an adult. Pretty um, unique, in my opinion. Okay. But. And in my online research, I then found that the video store I used to work at had its own vomit bag that it passed out for promotional purposes. Wow. Which was weird. Movies Unlimited, folks, only had three stores in the Philadelphia area, but its online uh, mail order business continues to thrive and uh, has only grown bigger and bigger. But back in the day, they would hand out vomit bags, apparently, which you know, I worked there for a while, no one ever mentioned this. Spill your guts out. This genuine Movies Unlimited stomach distress bag and the price of a video rental will enable you to have your own blood feast. Our horror films are rated T for terrifying. Wow. If anyone listening has an opinion on this, I would love to hear someone give me a good defense of why anyone would ever want to see a movie that promises that kind of reaction. But how can they get in touch with us? Go on. Well, you can write to us at boysandghouls at gmail.com. Or Twitter us at Boys and Ghouls. Or visit our Facebook page and give it a like. Any one of those things will enable you to let me know why in the hell you would ever want to go see a movie that makes me throw up. Let's look at a couple of other notable uh, publicity stunts and gimmicks through the years. Hit me. Okay, well, there was The Night Evelyn Came Out of the Grave in 1971, in which theaters advertised blood corn. Blood corn was ordinary popcorn with food dye added. Oh. Yeah. For The Curse of the Werewolf and Shadow of the Cat, which was a uh, double bill package by Universal, in Washington, D.C., the movies were promoted by a theater advertising Werewolf Wanted. The winner was made into a werewolf by local makeup artists, and then rode around town in a Convertible with a black masked cat girl. Oh my goodness. The Curse of Frankenstein, to promote that movie's New York premiere, the theater hired a man to walk up and down the sidewalk carrying his own severed head under his arm as he handed out cards that said, You will see the Curse of Frankenstein at your own risk. Good old days. Monsters crash the pajama party. A guy in a gorilla suit would go out into the audience and grab actors who were planted in the audience and drag them off to promote a uh, 1977 redneck oddity called The Worm Eaters. The producers of The Worm Eaters ate live worms from a bucket. Oh, come on! Startling the distributors that they were trying to get interested in their film. Much more recently, at Sundance in 2009, the uh, writer, director, auteur of Birdemic. I've heard of Birdemic. I actually was requested to audition for Birdemic 2. And then I watched a trailer for Birdemic and decided against it. It's got a following. I know it does. It has a cult following, but it looks terrible. Oh, oh, it is. (laughs) And um, when the the director arrived at the Sundance Film Festival, it was in his van that was adorned with stuffed birds and, like, Covered in bird blood and bird parts, rolling up and down the street, blasting the sound of screeching birds. (laughs) 
written on the side was, why did the eagles and vultures attack? And the website was spelled wrong on, this, on the side. Oh. It was supposed to say birdemic.com. It actually said bidemic.com. Hey, those people on that bus are being attacked by those birds. Let's go save them. For the movie Creep Show, I don't know what it looked like or what it did, but a creep detector was installed. It was installed outside of the theater the that theater? was showing Creep Show. I, uh, I bet it would have gone to, right to 11 for you, Marshall. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know what it looked like. If, if, if they would wand you or you would walk through something or they just had a dog that could smell creeps. <laughs> Tried to find something about it online. I really couldn't find anything. That's fun, though. I like that. They say that to promote Hitchcock to the birds, giant feed trays were, were set up all over New York, which just resulted in giant amounts of pigeon crap. I was just about to make that joke. In um, 2007, a 200-foot inflatable crocodile is tied to the Sydney Harbor Bridge in Australia for the creature featured black water. It broke free and drifted into the city like a helium clover field. <laughs> and I, I'm told funny. this is on YouTube. Oh my god! I have to see this. That's great. Marshall, have you seen the horror film Wreck? R-E-C? No. Nope. Uh, this was a Spanish film from Spain. Nice. 2007. Uh, it was remade the following year in the U.S. Was it, was it quarantine? It was quarantine. Oh, okay, yeah. The same premise. You know, a reporter goes into this building and there's some outbreak. It's a, it's a found footage movie. It is, yes. And uh, apparently really terrifying, the, at least the, you know, Spanish version. And But I found this article online. It says it was from August of, I'm guessing, 2007. Uh, a promotion for the horror film wreck has been derailed by the chief investigator for the New Zealand Food Safety Authority. The promotion centered around the, quote, Extreme Bloody Mary, a beverage which contained drops of real human blood. Organizers were requested to cease with the promotion under Section 9 of the Food Act 1981, as it, is, say no blood. as it is prohibited to serve food that is unsound, unfit, or offensive for human consumption. And one of the promoters, Ant Timson, he's uh, he's an incredibly strange film festival director. And he was promoting it, and he says this ruling had taught him a lesson. He says, two things I learned. Blood is actually classified as a food, and it's prohibitive to consume any amount of it. That sound you just heard was 10,000 goths sighing, which I think is really funny. But isn't that just disgusting? And not the first article you've read to me about people drinking blood. It is not. And may I venture that it probably won't be the last. (laughs) Um, Marshall, let's talk about a little bit some of the more recent marketing campaigns that have gone on for horror movies and some of the reasons why they might work and the lengths people have gone to. I mean, obviously intimidation and telling people that they can't handle it gets people into the seats. For horror films. I'm not sure. I'm sure there are a lot of theories on psychology of that. There's a whole lot. There's a whole badge of honor when you can make it through a movie that a lot of people revile. And, you know, like Human Centipede, it's a badge of honor to make it through that movie. But there are some horror films that have gotten people in the seats despite seeming to be ridiculous. Like, think about titles like Snakes on a Plane, uh, yeah. Piranha 3 D. I mean, these are outrageous titles. I'd love to meet someone who didn't pay money to see Snakes on a Plane ironically, you know, like put down that ironic $12 or whatever, but uh, I wish I could have paid with ironic money. It was a fun, it was a fun movie though, but I mean, the title got people in the seats. People love Sam Jackson, but I mean, snakes on a plane. I have had it with these monkey fighting snakes on this Monday to Friday plane. 
Marshall, have you seen the advertisements for Prometheus? Yeah, I've seen the trailer. Right. Well, there's the trailer, which is nice and scary, right? But then they've also released a video with one of the robots from the film, you know, and he says, my name is David. And then he talks about how I can't feel human emotion, but I certainly can recognize it. And then a tear falls down his face. And it's, it's not in any way, they don't really mention Prometheus. It's just, you know, that this is what it is. There's also a TED Talk. I don't know if you know the TED Talks that happen. They're intellectual. And they've done one with Guy Pierce playing a representative of Wayland Corp. And he's doing this whole thing. And I these are, these are independent, these little teasers, right, for the film. And then also, the website for the film is just a, a completely comprehensive website for Wayland Corporation. So it's got, like, what you might see on any corporate website where you can read about their products. And they have the robot David if you wanted to buy one. Here is his weight. Here is his Height. Here are his size measurements. Here is what he's capable of doing. And is the actual trailer for the film anywhere in this website? Not that I have seen. It's just a website for the corporation. Because I went to a um, Spider-Man. I went to Carl's Jr. Mm-hmm. a couple days ago in Glendale. And they, it was because they had like webs all over it. They said, come down to Carl's Jr. Check out all the webs. Ooh. And it was like a big push for Spider-Man. And you could spin a wheel. And they had girls, pretty girls with flat stomachs there to uh, hand out like posters and t-shirts and stuff. That's pretty key. Yeah. And they're advertising. And one of the things was, here's a code key of different colored spiders. Go inside the Carl's Jr. and see if you can crack the code. And then enter the code in this website. Ah. And I, and I did, and the website is more or less a wanted poster for Spider-Man. Sure. And then the trailer. Yeah. Whereas the Prometheus Viral advertising sounds yeah. a lot more comprehensive. It is, and and I, I was impressed with how comprehensive it was, and how it's showing real respect for the fans that they, you know, you're giving them so much more than just the film. Well, the danger is spoilers. Sure. That's why, like, I know I'm going to see Prometheus, uh-huh. so I don't really pursue it. Well, there are a lot of people. I think I'm not one of them, but there are a lot of people who don't mind that. They want to know everything before the movie comes out, which just blows my mind because I'm like, why, why then? Are you don't you want to go be surprised? But I digress. You know, so more and more lately they've been using the internet to get people hyped up. One of the earliest examples of that, probably the most famous example of viral marketing on the internet is for the Blair Witch Project. I don't know if you remember, but they went into message boards. There was a lot of work done there. There was a website. They marketed it as being real. Well, I've read that uh, they managed to get their IMDB pages for the actors to say that they're missing or dead. Really? Yeah. That's... That was something of a coup on their part. Really? I've read. You know, uh, Cloverfield, J.J. Abrams, pretty expensive experience with viral marketing from Lost, which, you know, he worked on, you know, it was his TV show, and they had the Lost experience online, but they used similar online tie-ins for Cloverfield, but they also introduced misdirection, like calling in the movie Slusho and Colossus online, despite already knowing what the title was going to be, fans eat that stuff up. Um, in 2009, Paranormal Activity uh, benefited largely, you know, this movie was made for 15 thousand dollars that's it but they hit the social networks really hard especially twitter and actually after the film's release they encouraged viewers to tweet their screens and write write reviews on twitter and i know you remember as i do seeing the commercial on television and on the internet and basically showing a little bit of footage from the film but mostly showing infrared footage of the audiences screaming their heads off and jumping really high which I am very affected by spook house movies, like movies about ghosts, because I believe in ghosts, and I just, you know. So I was shocked away from seeing that movie until probably a year ago. Like, I think it took me two years before I finally sat down and watched the movie. So that worked on me. Paramount Pictures presents The Freak. This movie won't just scare you, it will fuck you up for life. 
My favorite example of this. I don't know if you saw the advertisement for The Last Exorcism. Yeah. In 2010. They used chat roulette. Did you see this? No. Oh my goodness. Okay, so yeah, you've seen the trailer for The Last Exorcism. It's an exorcism movie. Yeah. But if you're familiar with chat roulette, you just click and you, you are brought roulette style into someone's living room, wherever they're sitting on their computer. You know, you volunteer to go on this place and you, you just throw it to the gods to see who's going to pop up. There's mostly a bunch of guys lying. Exactly. A lot of people on their trolling for sex, that they're looking for that kind of thing. So appropriately, the people who were marketing for The Last Exorcism put out this video that would come up when people were truly on chat roulette doing their thing, and they released this video after they had done this work. And you can watch this online. There's a split screen of what the, what the marketing people put up and the people watching it. And it's this girl, and she's really pretty. She's got brown hair, and she's really cute. Giggling, and she's bashful. And, she, and you can see these like teenage boys on the other side kind of watching. They can't believe their luck because usually you're coming across like really creepy people and the girl looks down at her shirt and she unbuttons the button and she giggles and she looks down and then she sits up and she looks into the camera and she pulls her hair back and her eyes open really wide and roll into the back of their sockets and her mouth opens really wide and she at the screen like scary style like jump video style and these people are flipping out on the other end because they think this is just a real person then there's a black screen and it says the last exorcism.com but I think that's genius I mean they really scared the pants off these people I think that's incredible use of that I Um, wonder how many perverts then went to see the movie no kidding probably a lot you know and of course something with an utterly disgusting premise like human centipede is going to get people in the theaters just so that they can prove that they've gone to see it. And, you know, there are some examples of non-horror films, like the five-year engagement has a whole website that's like our wedding blog, and it, you know, you yeah. can, it's pretty comprehensive. But, I mean, I think for the most part, horror benefits the most from this kind of marketing. I guess because it is a touchy genre. I mean, I know people who just don't watch horror movies because they can't take it. And so, for the people who do, I think it takes more and more and more to get them really riled up and really scared. And so, if someone can promise to scare even the most seasoned viewer, then, you know, and if they can prove that in some way, like showing the audiences jumping out of their seats or whatever it is they choose to do, I think that's what's going to get really seasoned horror fans who've been watching it for decades into the seats, even though they think you think you've seen it all, but, you know, it's like, what? I've seen all these movies. You can really scare me? Okay, here's my money. And hopefully it pays off. You mentioned uh, the Blair Witch Project. Mm -hmm. Good promotions, but for me, they have one of the bigger merchandising fails. Go on. Which is, the movie doesn't have a soundtrack. Mm -hmm. There's no music in the movie. Right. There isn't. to, To cash in on the movie, a soundtrack was released. Under the premise that this was taken from a mixtape found in the car of one of the lost filmmakers. Uh, but, I understand the idea, but oh, yeah, that, I that's can not even the fail part. Uh oh. The fail part comes in that the movie was supposed to take place in like '95 or something. Uh oh. The songs on the supposed soundtrack. Let me guess, from 1999. And and thereabouts, yeah, they mm. came out after the movie was supposed to take place. Whoopsies! Talk mm. about shooting yourself in the foot. Yeah. Uh, which brings us to one of the greatest bits of horror tie-in merchandising I've ever seen, 1-900-FREDDY. That sounds like a so, some kind of hotline you'd call to talk to Freddy himself. There's no way they actually did that. Well... Foolish friends, Freddy Krueger is on your phone. Dial this number now. I've got some tales to tell. Freddy's favorite bedtime stories. <laughs> Dead time stories. All brand new, straight from my boiler room to your home. It's Freddy Krueger on your phone. So dial this number now if you dare. Tell him Freddy sent you. 
$2 the first minute, $0.45 each additional minute. Children, get your parents' permission before you dial. Uh, Kat, we have a recording here. Oh, we do? Let's let's give it a listen. I'd love to. Uh, you've reached 1-900-FREDDY. This is Freddy speaking. Hi, Freddy. What, what's your name? Allison. You like going to the mall, Allison? I guess. Yeah. You're at the mall now. Yeah? Yeah. But it's all creepy and deserted. Oh, yeah? And the lights, the lights are all flickering. And there's a, a tipped-over tricycle with the front wheel still turning. Oh, that is creepy. And, and over by the record store, it's me! <gasps> yeah, and I'm, I'm walking slowly toward... What are, you, what are you wearing? What? What are you wearing? Um, a, a fedora with a sweater with alternating red and green stripes and a knife club. Oh, yeah? Oh. Well, now, now you start to run and you see a security guard and you run over to him. But it's really me dressed up like a security guard. Oh! Yeah. And, and then you run to the soft pretzel stand. But the soft pretzel guy is me. <laughs> and then, then you wake up. It was all a dream. It was all a dream. But then you pull back the sheets, and there's a soft pretzel. <gasps> it wasn't a dream. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was that was really scary. Oh, uh, call, call back anytime. Oh, I will. Uh, all right, you, you take care now. <laughs> That that would have that was quite something. That was something. There there were although I never got to actually call one nine hundred Freddy myself. Oh, me either. Back in the day, uh, I found a few people online who said that they had, and the general consensus is that one, it wasn't really Robert England. No. And I thoroughly skimmed Robert England's autobiography, Hollywood Monster, looking for one nine hundred Freddy. There's a lot of good stuff in here. Participating one nine hundred Freddy was not among them. Yeah. So I'm gonna say they found a sound alike. Probably one a little better than the one you just heard. <laughs> or not. The guy playing Freddy uh, would speak very, very slowly. Oh. Because they were being charged by the minute. Oh. So the longer he drew out the tail, it was probably just... And then... He walked around the corner. Oh. And then... Twenty more dollars, please. Sure. <laughs> to your parents. They yeah, won't, they won't find parents. out for like a month, and by then you'll be rich. Well, the ad does tell the children to tell their parents yeah. before calling, which I'm sure that always happened. Yes. Not. What I did find out, though, in the Robert England book, is he directed 976 Evil. Oh. Yeah. Really? I've heard of this film. But did not participate in his own 1-900 number. <laughs> so. Well, um, sadly, that kind of concludes this podcast on horror film advertising. But, I mean, I'm sure we're going to have so much more fun in upcoming episodes. So don't, don't be too sad, because we have another one coming up on the 13th of next month. Yes, we uh, drop on the 13th of every month. If you haven't listened to our previous podcasts, give them a listen. And check us out on Facebook and Twitter, Boys and Ghouls. We also have a Tumblr page. Boys and Ghouls podcast at Tumblr. I have been curating quite the Pinterest account Ooh. For, for us. So uh, if you're on the Pinterest, stop on by at Boys and Ghouls podcast and uh, check out some nice pictures. Marshall always finds the most delightful photographs. I do. 
So, Marshall, uh, for for all intents and purposes, we are done here. And on your journeys, until you listen to the next podcast, beware the moon. Beware the care.